survey that cross and think about that cross, we stand in awe. We stand amazed. It's the only answer. It's the only word to use when we really see the cross of Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. This is introductory material today. This is getting a grasp, I hope, on this sermon that is perhaps, without a doubt, uh, not perhaps, it is without a doubt, the most familiar sermon and the most read sermon in all of history. I remember several years ago when I was in seminary having to look up some different sermons and I went and found a book of, of great sermons and uh, I thought, well, I want to see who's in here and, and they had some of the greatest. They had Charles Spurgeon. They had Martin Luther. Uh, they, they had all of the great preachers of the gospel for all of history. But the first sermon in that book was the text of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount. Because it is without a doubt, I think, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's also probably the sermon that is most misunderstood by most people, Uh, even people in the church. A lot of times people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, well, there is a sort of restatement of the law. There is something that Jesus is saying. Now, the law was for the Jews in the Old Testament, but now we come to this New Testament, this New Covenant era, and now this is a whole new law. And you hear people sometimes say, you know, I just try to live by the Ten Commandments. Excuse me, I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Some would say by the Ten Commandments. Some will say by the Sermon on the Mount. I just try to put into practice those things that are there and, and I try to see them as a way that I can live a good, righteous life. The problem is these are not giving you admonitions on how to live. These are giving you descriptive na- uh, words, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. I'll show you that in a minute, I hope very clearly. These are descriptions of, of what a believer is. These are not talking about here's how you become a Christian. These are talking about when you are a Christian, when you are in Christ, this is the type of character that you will live. I, I've heard people, I heard uh, this past political season, I heard the Sermon on the Mount used for all sorts of different things. One, just to say, this is how I live, this is what I live by, and, and this is my standard. It's not given as a standard. I heard another one take this Sermon on the Mount and say, well, the reason I support uh, same-sex marriage is because of my belief in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm still trying to figure that one out. I'll be honest with you. Because he said, well, it just says love your neighbor. You know, you're to love one another and you're to do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. I mean, that, even people who have never read the Sermon on the Mount typically know that phrase, don't they? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Treat people right. And they would say, well, there's the essence of what this sermon's all about. That's not what the essence of this sermon is all about. It's interesting that you have to look at this a little bit in context. According to to Matthew, uh, this sermon comes right up at the very front of Jesus' ministry. I I had Todd read the passage out out of Mark's gospel that somewhat parallels what's going on in this particular place. But but you have to understand, Jesus has just gone evidently through the temptation period. We know the story of the temptation. 
temptation. He was taken out by the Spirit of God, not by Satan, but taken out by God's Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And three times he was tempted, and three times he did not sin. Tempted, John says later in John's epistles, tempted in every way that we are, every single way that we are, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And in every situation where we fall and where we give in to that temptation, he did not give in to it. So he's just coming out of that. And he's just beginning his public ministry. John has preceded him, John the Baptist. It's not John the Southern Baptist, by the way. It's just John the Baptizer. But uh, John the Baptist has preceded him. And John came with a very powerful message. John's message was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You find that in chapter 3, verse 2, if you want to look at it and, and follow up on it a little later. See if I'm telling you right. John said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came forth preaching, the very first thing it tells us about his preaching is found in chapter 4, verse 17, before the text we're going to read this morning. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John's message and Jesus' message are not different. They both center in on and talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, if you will. That's the whole theme of this sermon. If you look very carefully at what he says all through it, you're going to find throughout this sermon phrases like this. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 5.3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 5.10. Shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.19. Shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven, same verse, verse 19. Will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, 5.20. Your kingdom come, 6.10. But seek first the kingdom of God, 6.33. And shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 7. 21. I mean, I hope you see that throughout this sermon, as we look at it verse by verse in the coming weeks, you will see that the theme of this, the theme of this sermon is the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the, the essence of this sermon is, this is what it's like for a person who has repented and entered the kingdom of heaven. This sermon tells you what your life is like when you come to repentance before God by His grace and by His Holy Spirit and you bow in His presence acknowledging Him not just as Savior, acknowledge Him not just as a great teacher, not just as someone who deserves our respect, but come and bow in His presence and acknowledge Him as Lord of Lords in your life and in this world. It's an amazing thing to understand that the kingdom of heaven is the gospel that Jesus is preaching, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what, he said, what Matthew records starting in verse 23 as we look at this a little bit. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. See that? And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain 
And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, those whom he had called, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, now starting next week, we'll look at some of what he said there, but I want you to think about, I want you to think about the introduction of this. I want you to think about how Matthew sets it up just a little bit. Now we're going to see as he moves through it that there are really basically three basic divisions that, that you're going to see in this sermon. It's a good sermon. It's three points. You know, every good sermon I was taught in seminary had three points. I left that practice years ago, but that's supposedly what it's supposed to be. And he said there are basically three divisions of Jesus' sermon. The first one has to do with chapter 5, primarily chapter 5, and it talks about the citizens of the kingdom. Those who are citizens of the kingdom. Now you're going to find that in, in verses 3 through 16. And there are two things he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about their character. A citizen of the kingdom, this is what their character is made up of. Uh, they, they are like this because of the work of God that's entered their life. They're like this because of the grace of God that has literally transformed them. And, and that's what we typically call the Beatitudes. Verses 3 through 12, if you will. And then he's going to talk about their rela- the ki- these, these citizens of the kingdom. He's going to talk about their relation to the world. And one of the things he's going to make clear is that, that, that our citizenship really isn't in this world. We, we may live here, we may exist here, but we have to understand, if we understand the kingdom of God properly, we have to understand that we're aliens. We're foreigners. We belong to another kingdom in another place far, far away, and yet we live here as missionaries. We live here as those who have been commissioned by our king to bring his message, to bring his negotiations, if you will, into this world. That's why Paul said it another place. He said, we are ambassadors for Christ. We, we are ambassadors. An ambassador is one who comes in, in the place of a sovereign, who comes in the place of a leader and, and brings the message from the leader. The ambassador does not bring his own message. We've just gone through administration change. Ambassadors are changing all over the world. In every capital of every country, there's an ambassador leaving who was put there for one specific reason. And that was to whatever the message of George Bush was, he was to bring that message to that leader. Nothing else. He had no right to say, you know, I think George is wrong here. I think he's missed it here. Here's what I want to tell you. No, he was charged specifically with saying, this is what my leader has asked me to tell you. They're leaving. Barack Obama will now send his uh, President Obama will send his uh, representatives, his ambassadors to those same kingdoms. The message may change a little bit because there's a new leader. And, and that ambassador doesn't have the right to say, well, you know, I liked what one said over the other. His responsibility is to say, this is what my president wants you to hear. This is what my president wants you to know. We are a part of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus in this passage, if we are in Christ. And we have been charged as ambassadors to come to our world, not to tell them what we want to tell them, not to make up a new message or make up a new idea or say, you know, I don't really like this part of Scripture, so I want to tell you about something else. I want to change it just a little bit. No, we are to come with a clear, resounding message from the Sovereign, from the King, from the Lord. And that's to be our message. So our character is to match our message. Not because we can work up this character. 
Not because we can say, oh, I can make myself better. I can be better. I can do better. I can be stronger. No, we do it because of the power of God that dwells within us. You know, that's an amazing thing for a Christian, folks. You don't operate, if you're a believer, on your own strength. You don't operate on your own power. You don't operate in your own authority. You come in the power and the authority of your king. So we'll talk about the, he'll talk about the citizens of the kingdom. He'll also talk about the righteousness of the kingdom in, in chapters 5 and 6, the latter part of 5, all of chapter 6, and the first 12 verses of chapter 7. He'll talk about, he'll contrast the traditional interpretations of righteousness, the inter, uh, traditional interpretations of the law and applications of the law. He'll contrast that with how it's to be understood in the kingdom. Oh, he really messes things up here, folks. You know, he'll, he'll say things like, you've heard it said that you're not to commit adultery. And most could say, huh, I can count that one off. I've been faithful to my wife. I've never committed adultery. He said, but I want to tell you that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery with her already. Whoa! Now, wait a minute. Now you're getting into my thought life, not into my active, not in my actions, but in my thoughts. Yeah, that's right. Jesus says, because you as a child of the king, you as an ambassador of the kingdom, are to live differently because of the work that has been done in your heart, done in your life by the Holy Spirit. So he, he challenges and contrasts those traditional interpretations and applications. And, and quite honestly, I wish he'd have left them alone. Because it had been a whole lot easier under the old covenant to understand that. He talks about in respect to man's relation to God even. And in chapter 6, verses, verses 1 through 33, the whole chapter, he's going to talk about your giving and your, your caring for the poor. He's going to talk about your, your fasting and talk about your praying and talk about your treasures. And, and quite honestly, folks, he's going to get real personal. He's going to do what, you know, sometimes it's been said that sometimes a preacher goes from preaching and gets into meddling. He's going to meddle a lot. So I want you to understand. When you start thinking that I'm meddling here in those sermons, it's not me. Don't shoot the messenger. Understand, I'm just the ambassador bringing the message that he brought, that he sent me with, and same with you. He's going to talk about the difference between relationships between man and man in the first part of chapter 7. And he's going to talk about judging others. He's going to give us that great verse that every pagan and Christian alike knows, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And I hope that I can help you understand the interpretation, really understand what he's saying there. Because he's not talking about just not being discerning. He's not talking about just live and let live. He's not talking about, well, everything's all right, don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying there's a certain way that you are to discern. There's a certain way that you are to care about your fellow man. So this righteousness that comes will bring about a discernment in your life, but you ought to handle it in a proper way with those around you. And he'll talk about that. Then in the last part of that sermon, he's going to talk about the exhortation to enter the kingdom. And he's going to deal with how you begin it. He said, you know, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. I believe that we live in a world where that verse is so proven. I mean, there are a lot of people who say, well, I'm a Christian. You can't challenge that because I just say I'm a Christian and that's all it takes. But Jesus said, you know, there's a narrow gate. It's very narrow and, and few are those who enter in because most people want the broad way. Most people want the broad path. 
We'll talk about what that means and how you begin the path in the kingdom. And then he'll talk about the progress in verses 15 through 20. And he'll talk about the end of the way in verses seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. And he's going to do some contrasting here that's very important. I want to give you a heads up on it. He's going to show us a contrast between what it means to be sayers of the word and doers of the word. Uh, James talked about that some in his little epistle, and we'll parallel those two. But, but Jesus is going to talk about the difference in just saying I believe something and really living it out and really doing the word. He's going to talk about contrasting hearers and doers. Uh, you know, those who say, well, I hear God's word, I hear his truth, but never apply it, never make application. It's not a very pretty thing that he says about that, by the way. But we'll talk about that. One writer said, what we have here in chapters 5, 6, and 7 is the nearest thing to a manifesto that we ever have from the lips of Jesus. What we have here is a statement of, of declaration of saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. I have come to call you to repentance, to call you into the kingdom of heaven, and this is the manifesto of the king. This is the manifesto of the kingdom. This is what will set you free if you understand it properly and God applies it by his Holy Spirit to your life. But what is the kingdom of heaven? He uses it all throughout this. Over and over, I've already read the phrases where he's, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can enter the kingdom of heaven and, and all those sort of things. What does it mean when you talk about the kingdom of heaven? Well, some say, well, there's a difference here because Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. If you go to John and Mark and Luke, you're going to find them talking about the kingdom of God. And they try to draw some distinction here between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Schofield in his reference Bible, many of you, I won't ask you to hold them up, but many of you are probably sitting there holding a Schofield reference Bible. And in the notes, the Schofield reference Bible makes a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And he said, you know, one is for this world, one is for the next world. And the kingdom of heaven is for the next world. The kingdom of God is for this world. And so Schofield will tell you in those notes, and I think erroneously, that this passage here that we're going to look at, we're just wasting our time looking at it because it doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with the millennial kingdom, the, the, when, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, when Christ has returned. And so prior to his return, uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is not a part of what we're a part of. Others have said that. But if you do just a quick comparison to writing, the writings of Matthew and the writings of the other three Gospels, I think you'll find that they refer to the same thing. If you look at there 417 that we just, just looked at for briefly when we said the, that Jesus came declaring that, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Chapter 4, verse 17. And if you look in that passage over in Mark that Brother Todd read a minute ago, just turn over to Matthew, Mark, that follows just briefly there. Chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, verse 14 and 15. He says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's Mark's statement of the same thing that Matthew records in 4.17. Or look at Matthew 5.3 in that passage there. 
uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then turn over to Luke chapter 6, verse 20. You didn't know you can get a Bible drill this morning, did you? Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And Jesus, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, and this is the sort of Luke's account of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he turned his gaze toward his disciples, and he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of what? God. Same statement. Same statement. Or if you look in Matthew chapter 13, look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. 1331. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. There it is. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now look over in Mark chapter 4 verse 30. Mark chapter 4 verse 30. And he said to them, and he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown in the ground, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, etc., etc. Luke said, Mark says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Matthew says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Same statement that Jesus is making. One uses heaven, one uses God. Well, now... What do we have here? Do we have an error in the Bible? Did Matthew just miss it when he's sitting out there and he's hearing Jesus and he says, oh, I'm sleepy today. And did he say God or heaven? He must have said heaven. And so all these places he just adds down heaven? No. Matter of fact, you'll find in Matthew's gospel that he almost exclusively uses heaven. And the other apostles almost exclusively use the kingdom of God. Why is that? Well, I think it's very simple, personally. Matthew's gospel, if you, if you do the background study on these gospels, which we don't have time to go into real depth on here, but I want you to understand, Matthew is writing to a specific group of people. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the Jews. He's primarily writing to the Jews. Now, the Jews had a strong conviction about saying the name God. Matter of fact, I, I've got a friend who is still... Uh, somewhat an Orthodox Jew. And, and when I get an email from them, they will be talking about something that's going on in their life, and they will say, and, and I believe that G blank D won't write out God. I believe that, 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 you know, that, that God, he's, he's saying God, but he won't, he won't even write that word because he feels it so holy. You know, then I believe that this is... Uh, I believe that's what Matthew's doing here. Matthew knows that the Jews did not speak the name Yahweh. They did not speak the name God because they thought it so holy and so, so exalted and, and their lips were like Isaiah's. They were unclean and they lived among a people of unclean lips. And so they would not let their dirty mouths say that holy and righteous name God. So Matthew simply says, the kingdom of heaven when talking to these Jews. But I gave you just three examples. You could go on through the rest of the New Testament and you could find over and over again that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two, uh, are one and the same. Two statements of the very same thing. I think he also did it for this. 
the Jews were also had a misconception of the coming kingdom. Many anticipated a physical kingdom. You know, the, the expression heaven or literally heavens would emphasize a spiritual kingdom. And so I think Matthew is trying to say, listen, your understanding of the kingdom is not going to be coming in on a white horse and setting up the rule here and running the Romans out. It's going to be a matter of spiritual nature. You need to understand what that nature is. There are four related concepts, I think, to the, the understanding the kingdom of heaven and conversely or similarly the kingdom of God. First of all, you need to understand that God's kingship rule and recognized sovereignty is a part of it. Jesus is saying here, understand, this is a kingdom that is ruled not by men, but it's a kingdom that's ruled by God. The, the Jews often use the word kingdom in sort of an abstract idea of rule or dominion and, and, and not some geographical area surrounded by physical boundaries. And, and Jesus wanted them to see that this is greater than anything they could ever imagine. So Jesus used it. He expressed that it's God's will being accomplished is the essence of the king. That's why in the, in the prayer, the model prayer there, he's going to give us a little later on, he, he's going to say, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's God's kingship, God's rule, God's absolute sovereignty. The second thing, and I've already alluded to this, is that it's spiritual in nature. It's not a physical kingdom. That was made clear in John 18, 36, when they wanted him to call together an army and let's go do something, let's declare ourselves and, and we'll, we'll win, the, win the day. No, it's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Paul even spoke of that in Romans 14, 17, that his kingdom is one of spiritual nature. It is visible in the world today. It's visible in the world today in the form of Christ church. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of heaven on earth. This is where His will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Among His people in the community of souls whose hearts God has brought together sovereignly and bound together in a covenant relationship as a church. The church constitutes the kingdom on earth. You see that it all through the scripture, but in, in Matthew 16, 18, the term church and kingdom are, are used interchangeably there. And comments by those who were in the church in Colossians 1, 13 and, and 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, those all relate to this idea that this is the manifestation of the kingdom on earth today. But it also involves the new heavens and the new earth that you'll read about and we'll read about as we move through this. The kingdom of heaven has not only the present expression in his church, but it has a future expression as well. And, and Jesus makes that clear when he says the kingdom of God is, is going to be con, uh, consummated on his return. It's going to be consummated when Christ comes again in a second coming. So the present sense... Of the, of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is found wherever the sovereignty of God is accepted in the lives of men and women. Wherever the sovereignty of God is accepted, that's within His church. That's where the kingdom of heaven is. It's a spiritual kingdom where God rules in the hearts and the lives of individuals who come together corporately in covenant relationships. And its outward manifestation today is the church. 
So you, you can say next Sunday, well, let's go down to the kingdom instead of going to church. I mean, it would be acceptable. I doubt that we'll take up that practice. But we have to understand this is where we come to seek the will of God. To seek to say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Do your work among our lives. It's so vitally important. And then there's the future. There's the future manifestation. The kingdom we culminated when the skies part open and the, the, the trumpet sounds and the Lord splits the sky and he returns to this earth. Peter and John both referred to it as new heavens and new earth. And it will be experienced in those who, it's experienced today by those who are submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. None others. One day, it will be experienced for judgment's sake by the Lordship, those who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and those who do not. And they will see in that day when it's too late that there is a kingdom and there is a king. His name is Jesus Christ. So what do we do? How do we understand this sermon that we're about to launch into over the next several months to kind of glean the, the greatness from it? It's going to talk about character. It's going to talk about blessedness. How we can be blessed by Almighty God. How we blessed by Almighty God. We're going to understand what real righteousness is. Not, not self-righteousness, not, not shallow righteousness, not righteousness when people are looking at us, but character is based on righteousness. I remember a book written several years ago. I, I never read the book, but I love the title. Who are you? nobody's looking see who you are when nobody's looking indicates your character who you are when everybody's looking indicates your reputation and the two ought to be synonymous but sadly they're not because the reign of God has not fully permeated many lives and the day in which we live. We're going to concentrate next Sunday on the Beatitudes. Not all of them, but we'll start with two or three of them. And we're going to look at the truth that Jesus is showing here when he talked to, John, uh, to, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When, he, when Nicodemus simply answer, asked the question, you know, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus answered and said, listen, I, I, most assuredly I say to you that unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We were in Nashville for the last couple of days celebrating our birthdays, mine, Reddas, and Wills all together. And we had the chance on Friday to have lunch with some, uh, with some dear friends that we haven't seen in years. They were in our church in Orlando, and uh, they moved away in 1996 to New York City, and, and now they're back in Nashville, and they were there, so we were able to get up. We had lunch together on Friday. 
And we were sitting around talking, and, and they're real involved in Bible study fellowship. And, and she was telling the story about her neighbor. They live in a rather nice part of Vanderbilt, from my understanding. We didn't go to their house, but it sounds a very nice part. And their neighbors are all pretty much unbelievers. And, and one neighbor next to her, who's considerably older than Nancy is, they, they are both members of the Vanderbilt Women's Reading Club or something like that. And they go and they read these books together, mostly secular books. And one day they were talking and they were having something. And Nancy said, well, I can't go because I, and they usually ride together. So I can't go because I have Bible study fellowship. And the lady said, what, what are you talking about, Bible study fellowship? She said, well, I go once a week and I study the Word. And there's a group of ladies and we gather and we study together and everything. And she said, well, I want to go. And she said, uh, well, Okay. Well, it happened that her group, the group she should be in, was filled up, and uh, there was nowhere to put her. But Nancy went to the leader and said, you've got to put this lady somewhere. You've got to put her somewhere. And her husband's an agnostic. He was a, with the International Monetary Fund for years, and, and uh, not, not dumb people. And so she started going with Nancy. And they were uh, visiting together. And, and one night, Nancy and were in their home, and they were sitting around talking. And Dave, her husband, was sitting... Uh, Nancy's husband was sitting there, and this lady just started talking to Dave. And she said, well, you know, I'm born again. And, and Nancy had not heard her say that, and Dave hadn't, and they were kind of taken back. And Nancy and Dave and, and this lady has entered into a, a discussion, and, and she said, no, I, I, I've come to see my need for Christ. I'm born again. Now, her husband's an agnostic, and he's sitting over in the corner just keeping his mouth shut. I... I Nancy said he, she thinks his idea is as long as he's not getting her in trouble, it's all right. And so it wasn't getting her in trouble, so it was okay to go. And I'm not sure about this born-again stuff. But, that, but here, that's what, that's what Jesus is talking about. It, it's something that happens that changes our very nature. It's something that happens that changes our heart. It's something that happens that makes us different. It's not just going to church. It's a relationship the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you. We're thankful, Lord, for the kingdom. We're thankful, Lord, that it's your kingdom not ours. But we can be a part of it by your work in our life. As Jesus said, when we repent and follow by your grace, by your strength, by your call, that call that's effective when it touches our lives. Father, I, I thank you for that call. Thank you, Lord, for that touch of your grace in my life. Father, I pray for men and women who are perhaps here this morning. I don't, I don't know everybody that's here this morning. And, and Lord, I don't know if they came here just seeking or looking or, or struggling or, or hurting or, or what. But, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would take the truth of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and touch their life with it. Do your work. Father, I pray for others that just your 
working in their heart, drawing them close to yourself. And Lord, maybe there's some things they need to deal with right where they sit. Others, Lord, need to come and make covenant with this church. Make covenant relationship because of your covenant with one another. Father, I just pray that you would do your work this morning. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.